chapter 1. We encourage you to bring your Bibles along. I think it's good to see a number of people reaching uh, for their scriptures. Please, please bring them off. If you haven't, don't feel persecuted by that or uh, kind of uh, singled out. We do have it on the screen for us. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the decrees and commands and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the furthest corner, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. And the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Have your way, please, Lord. And so capture our thinking that we make resolutions and choices for you and your kingdom. So capture our imagination that we're able to see with faith your plans and purposes. And so capture our wills that we say yes to you in every way. Amen. A minister at the Baptist church believed that God was calling the church to a new vision of what God was wanting to do in that place at that time. So the deacon, at the deacon's meeting, he presented with great, great clarity and conviction and energy and passion that he could muster the vision that God had laid on his heart. When he had finished presenting to the leaders, he sat down and the chair of the meeting called the vote. All 14 deacons voted against the new vision with only the minister voting for it. Well, pastor, 14 votes to one. It looks to me like you'll have to think again, said the chair of the meeting. Would you like to close the meeting with prayer? So the minister stood up, raised his hands to heaven and prayed, Lord, you will, not, will you not show these people that this is not my vision, but this is your vision? At that moment, the clouds darkened, thunder rolled, And a streak of lightning burst through the window with an ear-shattering roar, split the table in two at which they were sitting, throwing the minister and all the deacons to the ground. 
After a moment's silence, as they all got up and dusted themselves off, the chairman spoke again. Well, that's 14 votes to two. (laughs) We are together and uh, believing that God has called us for a reason. It's nothing new. We have called and be commissioned for a purpose. As Duncan began to outline for us last week, we, we are really sure that God has his hand upon us. It's not from pride or arrogance, but the evidence and the belief and the conviction of what Scripture tells us. And we believe that he's called us together to, to make a difference, to build one another up, but to see the kingdom come and the lost saved in greater measure. And so we are focusing on our vision some more. And last week and this week, kind of setting some undergirding, underpinnings of why and what vision is about. We will uh, spend more time in the coming weeks on the the nuts and bolts of our particular vision statement. But just a kind of a salutary reminder, Um, it's Christmas is coming. Uh, Did you know that? And when I say that, there's already, because of the power of advertising, that may be in your mind Coca-Cola, you know? There we are, look, old-fashioned. I came across a story of Coca-Cola, but at the end of World War II, Robert Woodruff, president from 1923 to 55, had this mission. In my generation, he declared, it's my desire that everyone in the world have a taste of Coca-Cola. Incredible, isn't it? Everyone in the world have a taste of Coca-Cola. And with a vision and a declaration rarely matched in corporate American culture, Woodruff and his colleagues span the globe with their soft drink. And his vision has worked out in places I visited, in Africa and other places. You can get Coke most places. The power of vision. The power of determination. And the challenge, why is it right for people to feel that passionate about a soft drink of vegetable extracts? But not about taking Christ to the world. So pop quiz. In Chipping Camden Baptist Church, I know there's evidence of the vision statement around us. It's on the screen. I won't. Oh, it's gone. Oh, it's over there. Move sides and uh, on here. Can anyone say? Let's just say it, re- reminding what our first aspect of our vision is. Proclaiming Jesus. Proclaiming Jesus to people today. There we go. They're up on the screen. Second one. Making disciples. Making disciples. Fantastic. These are kind of drawn from Scripture that we believe firmly in the Bible. This doesn't override Scripture, but these help us in our life together as priorities and essentials. Thirdly, building God's kingdom. Great. Fourthly, it's like a mantra, isn't it? We get get this. And fifthly, planting new churches. And finally, well, not finally, but it is a kind of encouragement that it's not just local. It is reaching the nations. How do we do that? Well, um, I've put together a little picture on the bottom, uh, and it's something really important for us, uh, both as gathered and dispersed. We gather together now. We gather together in house groups. We gather together in prayer meetings. We gather together in ones and twos and twelves and, and, and much more. We gather together at this point. We do this. This is our mission corporate. This is our mission and our vision statement summarized for us as the people of God together at Chipping Camden Baptist Church. This is, this is what we're about. Now, there are more things I know, but this is, these are the essential things that we are committed to, that we have seen God unfolding and building amongst us, and we want to see more of that. Do you? Hooray. 
But also we do this disperse. One of the things that we really want to emphasize is that we all play our part in this. That it's, that it's the individuals as well as the corporate. It's the together as, there as well and being built up and equipped in the different ways that we can be in small groups and in prayer gatherings and, and, and worship events together like now as, as we come together for our Sunday services. But it doesn't just stop here in the corporate. It's about us being church, the body of Christ, the people of God as we disperse and go our way. We are still tasked by God, called by God, commissioned by God. And I hope eager to see these things. Now, you may ask the question, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we plant churches as individuals? That's a good question, and we'll get to that. But we want to see and be healthy church. We want to see and be a people of God who, who are enjoying God and his favor, but making a difference. And so we, as Duncan was explaining last time, are committed to to doing something about it. And we're all part of that. We're all tasked. What do we want to see? Well, we've got some, some things in, in mind. We, we moved to the school to make room for God. There was that physical kind of space. We were outgrowing our building uh, on the high street. We couldn't fit everybody in. And there weren't space for visitors and for, for growth. We moved here to make room for God. That's still our passion. When we were here in our cornerstone at summer conference, we had to relocate to the stage for the band and everything. We have plenty of space to grow. That's our heart to do that. But more than that, making room for God means, means in the personal, in our personal walk with Jesus, to say it's not just about the religious moments, it's about life, living for Jesus, making room for him in all ways. Some practical things we want to see. We have a, a prayer meeting once a month together called Hungry for God. Details in the contact sheet. On Monday night from 7 to 8, we are, we are wanting, because we believe in the, in the essential nature of prayer, to come together at least 100 people month by month calling out to God. It's not a, an A plus B equals C prayer. Never is. But it signifies to God that we are committed to his purposes and we understand that it's not by our strength and our ability and our clever strategy, strategy, but about him and his ways and what he would want to do as we seek him for our neighborhood and community and our region and our country. That we're saying, Lord, have your way. Your kingdom come. We're desiring of that. It's a priority for us as a church. And we're learning from the example of so many other places where God has moved that God's people got together. Now we're not seeing A plus B equals C. 100 people plus a prayer meeting equals the spirit falling. That's God's sovereignty. But we are saying, we are committed to this and learning from the examples of others, saying, Lord, we trust you. And so I ask you at this point to commit in your diaries as we make the, the dates known. The next one is a week, uh, two weeks on Monday to gather together at the church for an hour and pray with us. Call out to God. We wanted to see uh, our, our church grow in all sorts of ways with house groups, with the school hall here being filled, and in many, many other ways. We'll go through those in the coming weeks. Why not? We're his people, and he can accomplish great things. 
I wanted us to, to look at Nehemiah, and we haven't got a vast amount of times. So if you open your Bibles again, um, I haven't given the tech guys every verse that I'll be referring to, but I shall make reference to some of the story in Nehemiah. A really exciting uh, vision of a man, a man who sees what God would want to accomplish. It's not the only story we could have picked up on. Again and again, through the pages of Scripture, people who, who capture a, a glimpse, who, who God kind of arrests, who think it shouldn't be this way. Duncan referred to the preferred future of God last week. Of those people who kind of so grasp what God wants for them, that it so changes their course of life, and God does amazing things through them. Right at the beginning of Genesis, the man called Abraham Abram was his first name. The God said, I will make you a blessing. And through you I will build a people. And give you a land and make your name great and you'll have many offspring. And Abraham didn't really do much apart from trusting God and setting out on the journey that he was given. And the legacy of Abraham is still with us today. God is faithful to his covenant. Again and again in the story of scripture, we see ordinary men and women who God kind of reveals something to them about his will and his purpose and they simply say, yes, I want that, I will dedicate my life to that and God honors that and accomplishes great things. Whether it's the judges in in the story of Judges or Moses or the prophets that were called Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah to name a few, but all of them had this revelation from God and were so captivated by that. And God accomplished great things. The nature of naming them in scripture and the nature of telling their stories, we begin to distance ourselves from them and say they are different to us because they're amazing. Yes, they were amazing, but they were ordinary men and women, flesh and blood, who simply took God at his word. Nehemiah, very quickly in the story we read, he's, he's in the kind of post-exilic period, a hugely difficult time for the people of God in sort of 500-ish BC. The people of God had been scattered, they'd been taken away from the land, all the the stuff of their their religious faith had gone, decimated, people had been scattered, the the elites, the wealthy, the the educated had been taken away. And here we find Nehemiah serving in the courts. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. Reports come to him about what is the nature and the state of Israel, of Judah, of Jerusalem. And it's decimated. The walls have been burnt. There's so little left of what they put their trust in. But he was not despondent. He didn't kind of say, well, once upon a time, He knew that he was part of the people of God. He knew that God is faithful. He recognized, just very quickly, in verses uh, 3 to 4 of chapter 1, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. That, That seeing the world... And that call of, of belief to say it should not be this way. 
that we believe that for ourselves as a church. We see the world as it is. But know in our heart, as we sung earlier, the king has come. Let the kingdom of our God reign. With eyes of faith, we know it should not be this way, should it? I think you're convinced. Should not be this way. The Nehemiah saw and recognized that the reign and rule and the honor of Yahweh God that he worshipped was not, was not as it should be. And his response was to cry out. His response in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For some days. We're kind of asking as a church, asking you as a church to come for an hour once a month. And I know you pray, and I want to honor that. Pray more. But together, corporately, we pray in Sunday service, but we're setting a time aside this time to say, Lord, it is not as it should be. Please do something about it. And we are here to hear what you would say to play our part in it too. He reminds himself in prayer and for us in the record of the story that God is a covenant-keeping God. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who obey him and his commands. Let your ear be attentive. In other words, recalling and remembering who God is, what he has done, being re-envisioned about what he will do. God is a covenant-keeping God. We live in the days of the new covenant. We'll celebrate that in a moment. Nehemiah humbled himself to seek God. He said, it's not about me. He had a place of privilege in the court, in the place of power, the superpower of the day, the cupbearer. It's not an arduous job, is it? Carrying around a cup and pouring out a bit of wine from time to time. Cushy number. Everyone kind of looks to you as a state, place of privilege and of esteem. He's sorted, isn't he? But he says, there's more to my life than this. Serving God. It's not about me and my position, but about God and his honor. And having prayed and having remembered who he is and who God is, he's moved to take a risk. He's moved to step out in faith. We're told that he's the cupbearer of the king in chapter 2. He's pouring the drink for the king, but his face is sad. And the king says to him, verse 2, why does your face look so sad Are you, when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He takes a risk. Later on in the chapter, after being granted by the king the, the opportunity to go back and rebuild, verses 17 to 18, 
He's gone back to Jerusalem. He inspects the city. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king has said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, he's speaking to those who ridicule and mock and oppose. You have no share in Jerusalem or claim to this historic right. The Nehemiah in his story catches this vision, moves himself from the place of comfort to the place of desolation, that abandons destroyed city and is faced with a lot of work. He calls together the people of God and said, this is the vision that God has granted me. This is, the God, this is the vision that God has shown me. Will you join with me in it? And the people of God say, yes, we will. We trust in God. And they set about rebuilding. And the story in Nehemiah tells us about the different gates and the walls. It tells us about how people seek to oppose them discourage them and demoralize them and say, you shall not do this. And Nehemiah has to post guards, people armed as well as those people who are working because they recognize this doesn't happen freely, easily. And they rebuild the walls. Fantastic. Fantastic. The scriptures give us such great examples of what God accomplishes. I pray we would capture that vision again. Our vision, we've described it. We've uttered it. It's there before us. Let's see it come to be. I came across a story uh, as I hone in a little bit more on what this means for us. A story of three men, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. To all intents and purposes, they were fairly normal, apart from the fact that they had a psychotic disorder. That all three of them, Clyde, Leon, and Joseph, believed themselves to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And that the universe revolved around them. They found themselves, they were allocated to a psychiatrist, these three. And the psychiatrist wrote a book about their story, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti, with messianic delusions. And they were pretty normal until you touched the area of, of what they believed, and then they became fairly aggressive. The doctor tried many things until he came upon idea, an idea. He would get the three men to live together, uh, to kind of in the same house, these three supposed messiahs, and in that interrelationship to perhaps challenge their, their views that, well, there can't be three messiahs, can they? And to see what interplay came out. And in, in the story, a fascinating conversation. One would say in discussion, well, I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent on a mission to save the earth. Another would say to them, well, how do you know that? The first would say, because God told me. The other man would then say, I never told you such a thing. (laughs) 
And the truth of the matter is that we have more than a bit of Leon and Joseph and Clyde in us. Not only because of our heritage as offspring of Adam and Eve who wanted to be like God. But again and again, and this is where vision, kind of the rubber hits the road. Again and again, it's about will we put ourselves in the place of serving God or will we put ourselves in the place of thinking we're in charge? It's all very well having a vision statement and a grand ideal, but the rubber hits the road when God's people say, we will live our lives this way. It could have been Nehemiah in the, in the, in the palace of Artaxerxes saying, oh, it's a great vision, but I'll stay here, thanks. Someone else can do it. But he knew the call was upon him. And as he went to Jerusalem and called God's people together upon them, They owned it together. So often we plead my rights before reckoning that we're called to be his servants. I was uh, taking part in an alpha course recently somewhere else uh, and the question was asked to me, why are there 250 people at Chipping Camden Baptist Church? Given Sunday thereabouts. And why are there 20 in ours? Really difficult question. I wonder what you'd answer. As I thought on my feet, so to speak, I was sitting down. As I thought on my feet, I think what I wanted to say was this. That there are things that we do and that any church can do that make it attractive for people to come. But that's not really why God has, has done what he's done amongst us. Philip regularly tells this story about the history of our church. And I know some people think, oh yeah, that old story. But it's important to grasp the importance of it. That 30 years ago, there were six people or so, and they were praying together saying, and Lord, unless you do something, we will close. And I think the attitude of heart that crept into them as they prayed and cried out to God was saying, unless God, you do it, it won't happen And alongside that saying, Lord, we want you to do it and we will go with you in that. In other words, it was a heart attitude that said, God, we will make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of what you want to do. We will put ourselves out and change what we do and the way we do it because we will obey and honor you, Jesus. And I think God saw that heart change. And those people who are saying, yes, God, whatever it takes, we will do it. And Philip would tell you about Alice, who when Philip came was going to get rid of the pews and the organ. And he went trepidly to Alice's house, the old stalwart of the church, went in, the door was open. She said, you won't have a problem. I'll see to it that all the old people don't stand in your way. I don't like the drums, but we prayed for change. Do you know, in Scripture, the most common word for a disciple, for a follower of Jesus, disciple. Do you know what the next most common description of followers of Jesus is? Servant. Brenda, A+. 125 times. And the word translated servant is also, it's the word doulos. We get in Greek. You had Hebrew last week, Greek this week. Doulos means 
can be translated slave. How often would we describe ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ? I don't do it very often. I might say I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I get called a minister, which essentially is a servant. But we don't often call ourselves servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. We say ourselves as Christians, we say ourselves as followers, rightly so. But maybe because it plays into our consumerist Western culture that we are reluctant to say we are servants or slaves of Christ because it's this battle of idolatry. Who is in charge, me or Jesus? Whose rights are imposed, mine or his? Who am I following? Who will I lay down and give up for the sake of myself or him? But it's a prevalent, again and again, story in Scripture. Let's hear some verses for you. Uh, just to remind us, again and again in the books of the New Testament, the, the followers of Jesus would say we are servants, slaves of his. Here we go, Danny. Click on, please. There we go. Wrote Paul. Uh, Paul, a servant, a doulos of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. In Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants, doulos, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. To Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone and able to teach and not resentful. James, not just Paul and Timothy and his cohort. James, a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Peter, Simon Peter, that follower of Jesus. Simon Peter, a servant, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Jude, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus and brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Do you see, again and again, this most common description of themselves as slaves and as servants of Jesus Christ. It's clear who they're following, who they obey, who they look to, who they honor, who their lives are lived out for. Jesus. And no wonder the world was changed. As I was praying over the last couple of weeks, I had a picture which I'll share with you. And I don't give you this picture critically because I know this, well, you're, you're a great church and we're so thankful for you as his people. But I offer it to you with this in mind that God calls us to be servants of his slaves. The picture. As I was praying, and, and just God has impressed upon me, is, is sometimes I think church life in the West, I'll put it like that, is a bit like people coming to a theater. And in my picture, as I saw, there was, there was kind of like, we as, as his people are like the people in the audience in a theater. And the stuff that God is doing is on the stage. And it's kind of like a theater that people go in and they sit and watch and are moved sometimes. But then they kind of go out and they resume the rest of their lives. Do you you understand that picture? And I felt God say, my kingdom, my people aren't to be like this. 
But that's how maybe we have become as, as consumerists. We come and we opt in and we see, we view, we enjoy, we laugh. We're there kind of, but then we depart. It's not meant to be that way. He calls us as his servants, his slaves, people of his. And I was kind of asking him and saying, well, what picture, what picture would be more helpful? And I was reminded of the picture of of soldiers and the captain speaking to them and saying, this is what we're doing. And it's not that the soldiers are going, well, not today, thanks. We'll just have a, put our little trangier on and have our brew up. You can go off, captain. They don't do that. They say, yeah, okay, we go. They've committed their lives in living and in dying. I feel that as his people, we have to, as we embark upon this vision, come back to the cross, come back to the saving grace of Jesus, his enormity. As Guy Chevreux says, Jesus Christ gave his life for us so that he could give his life to us and live his life in his will. That as we embark upon vision, as we embark upon understanding what God is doing, it has to come from his people saying yes. It has to come from you and me and from us saying, we want this. We will sacrifice for this. This is his purpose for us. We're not free entities just to kind of drip in and out and choose and consume that which we like and, and, and oppose that which we don't. If God is calling us, we must respond obediently. What does Jesus say in John's gospel? If you love me, you will obey what I command. It's partial. One of my heroes in faith, just as we come to a close, is is a chap called Oscar Romaro. He lived in Latin America. He was martyred for Jesus shot on the 24th of March, 1980, as he was celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper in a small chapel in a hospital. One day after a sermon where he called the Salvadorian soldiers as Christians to obey God's higher order and stop carrying out government repression and violations of human rights. According to the audio recording of the service, he was shot while he was holding the cup at the end of the Lord's Supper. When shot, his blood spilled over the altar along with the contents of the chalice. He gave his life. One of the things he said is this, and I've quoted it. It's a long quote. It's on the screen. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts. It's even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tinier fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. That is what we are about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development, far beyond our capabilities. 
We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between master builder and the workers. As we preach and as we journey in this time together, I pray he would build us. And he would, we would work in his cause. Now, I'm not, don't hear what I'm saying as asking for you to be more busy in church life stuff. Sometimes we do it gathered, but our mission is Jesus to do it dispersed, to proclaim Jesus and make disciples and build God's kingdom and pray for revival. To plant new churches and reach the nations. Come, brothers and sisters, to this table. Not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any grasp on heaven's rewards, but simply that you know he loves you. Come because you're weak. Come because you're messed up. Come because you need him again. Draw near in faith. Draw near with hope. Draw near loving Jesus Christ. The one who died for the sins of the world. Who died to bring reconciliation between all people and God and reconciliation of man and woman to each other. He died that the new heavens and the new earth will be established. He died so that the power of sin and the power of the devil and the power of of death should be defeated once and for all. Thank you, Jesus. Even now as we break bread, even now as we take a cup, Stir the hearts of your people again. We give thanks. We affirm our faith in you. And pray by your Holy Spirit. Bring greater restoration and healing and forgiveness and assurance to us.